have something that sparks you, right? And and even if it's not the job that you go to every day, but you should have something that you're passionate about. So your job can be serving a purpose to allow you to do your passion when you leave it. Right. But you want to have something that matters to you, right? That you're advancing so that that way you're not just going through the motions. The Portland 50 podcast is brought to you by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. Additional support for the Portland 50 is provided by Zupan's Markets. Our guest this week is Kevin Carroll. Now, I'll be honest with you, it's hard for me to summarize who Kevin Carroll is because his story is so unique and what he does is so unique. But know this, he spent time in the Air Force, 10 years military intelligence, where he earned his degree. He then became an athletic trainer at a high school in Philadelphia and then college before becoming the head athletic trainer for the Philadelphia 76ers in 1995. A few years later, Nike came knocking and brought him to Portland into a job that really didn't exist, and they didn't really know what it was going to be. All they knew is that Kevin was special and that they wanted him to help bring value to their brand. And he did that. In 2004, he set out on his own, creating Kevin Carroll Catalyst, where he meets with CEOs and school kids, talking about the power of sport and play around the world. The interview I had today with Kevin Carroll was everything I wanted it to be. I've known him for a few years. Uh, He's inspired me. He's consulted me. And... He's a good friend, and I think you're going to enjoy our conversation. Kevin Carroll here on the Portland 50. The mere fact that you're here in the studio with me, my energy level is a a billion times better. (laughs) Court, there's, you know, there's, there's some, if these walls could talk. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're, you're sitting where our friend Jamie Mustard would would sit during the, uh, uh, what was the original name? About Face. About Face. About Face Radio, radio show, which, show that morphed into Radioactive. Radioactive. You would sit over here. Yes. And we would both stare in disbelief <laughs> at some of the at some madness of the that, that would come out of his mouth. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Those, those were some. Those were some memorable times. Um, <clears throat> when, when you describe yourself, Kevin, do you do? What, what do you start with? Because you're, you're a lot of things, and you've been a lot of things. What do you typically start with? Uh, author. Typically, it's author, speaker, instigator of inspiration. That's yeah. kind of how I boil it down. Sure. Yeah, it's those three things. That makes it much easier for me. But author, is it's funny. It's the, like the first thing I'll say, but it's not the thing that I really consider myself to be. Because mm-hmm. writers write, and that's their work every day. Yeah. And that's not my work every day, but I do love words, and words matter to me. So I think I'm looking at, as one of my uh, great friends said, uh, Marcus Swanson, he's from Swanson um, Studio here in town. Yeah. He said, Kevin, your platform is about broadcasting. Right. And finding as many ways to get your message out. So I'm always looking for platforms to be able to share words, mm-hmm. right, and thoughts and, and ideas. So I think that's a big part of what it is. So the author piece kind of fits in there, but the speaker piece and then the instigative inspiration. I think the, I think the author uh, piece totally fits because part of uh, your process in a lot of what you do has kind of the self-reflection and then writing everything down. Uh, it's amazing how important that is to to everything you do is is you have the conversation and then it's take that moment and let's write this down. That's part of the, your process, yeah. right? Oh, absolutely. And 
I've gotten better with I, I do like the visceral uh, feeling and the how much deeper it is when you use a pen and you're actually literally writing down. Yeah. I use notes on my iPhone, like I'll do that, but it's still not the same way of embedding it when I actually grab a pen and write it down on some parchment on some paper. And I love that that allows me to see it in front of me and so that might be a little more analog than most people, right. but I like that way too. So I can utilize that, but there's something about putting it down yeah. after hearing it that then embeds it further for me. And the more that I can start embedding that, then I can internalize that, then I can start to um, allow that to ruminate in me, and then I'll give back the interpretation of it with the words or the thoughts or the narrative that I want to attach to it. So it's a bit of the process for me that allows me to be able to give back what I think is a rich kind of conversation around an idea. Yeah. And, in, and I, and you see that in your, in your first book rules of, of the red rubber ball is that in the, in the book itself, you've got sections for notes. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Be, because you know, I'll, I'll watch my wife. She's a way better reader than I am, but she'll just grab a pen or a pencil and just start writing in, you know, the, the footnote or, you know, down at the bottom in the sides and the margins. Um, but in your book, there's actually spots in it. I mean, I guess people are, they can write wherever they want to, but you've got places in there just for taking those yes, notes. Yes, for taking those notes and jotting down a thought. And in the back, I've got some of that old school big chief paper where yep. we learn uppercase and lowercase oh, yeah, yeah, back yeah. in the day and stuff. So I have that. That's actually a nod to my penmanship teacher mm-hmm. because uh, she said in second grade prophetically, if you have good handwriting, people will respect you more. Yeah. And I went, oh, Okay. And so I really worked on my penmanship. And so people are starting in second grade. Yes. And second, and people are startled when they see my handwriting. They're like, wow, that's nice. I was like, yeah, that's fast. That's actually not neat. They're like, really? I said, so yeah. So, so writing things I think has always been a part of my um, thought process. And it's been important for me to write it down, speak it out and then make it real. Right. So my grandmother would say that a lot. She would say, write it down, speak it out, make it real. And so She'd also attach on there, closed mouth, don't get fed. You got to speak up, speak up. Let people know what it is that you want and what you hope for and what you want to do. And if you keep it locked inside, people don't know if they should rally around you or help you. So I think it's a really interesting thought that when we put something down, but then you have to have the courage to put it out there. Right. And then once you put it out there, now you need to have somebody hold you accountable Mm -hmm. because that accountability is going to either spur action or you're going to shrink in the face of it. Right. And yeah. I think that's really a big part of what, you know, you start to understand. But yeah, I think that's part of my creative process that started way, way back with my love of writing and words. Well, I'm glad you, you mentioned your grandmother, because that's kind of where I want to start, because the Kevin Carroll story doesn't start here in Portland. It started back in Philadelphia, maybe maybe not even Philadelphia. You were raised by your grandparents. Yes. Walk, walk us through that, because this, this story, I've heard you tell this story a few times, but... How you ended up with your grandparents alone is is a pretty interesting story. Yeah, the 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 journey. You know, we're the products of me and my two brothers. So three boys were the products of addiction and abandonment, uncertainty and upheaval, and dysfunction and disappointment. So both my parents were addicts, and they made some bad decisions that impacted three little boys. And my father left when I was three, I wouldn't see him again. My mom um, put us in a really bad predicament. She had taken us out of school and driven us away from Philadelphia, nearly 200 miles, and put us in a trailer and said, I'll be back shortly. And five days had gone by, she had not returned. Yeah. And at this point, my older brother's eight, I'm six, my little brother is three. And 
I know this isn't right. It shouldn't be this way. And so we um, decide to try to change our circumstance by finding help. And we find a stranger who agrees to help us. And I say, well, I know my grandfather's phone number. Can Mm -hmm. you call my grandparents in Philadelphia? They'll know what to do. We didn't know where we were. We didn't know that we were in this town 200 miles away. We just knew we weren't near the house. Right. And so uh, my grandfather got on the other end of the phone and said, what's going on? I said, pop up. Mommy's not here. And we're not even in school. He goes, well, where are you? I don't know. And we turned to the woman and we say, well, where are we? Oh, you're in Bowling Green, Virginia. So we were 200 miles wow. away from Philadelphia. Yeah. And my grandfather lets out this audible, I can't come get you. It's too far. Yeah. Can I talk to the woman? They have a conversation. Next thing she says, come with me. I'm going to the bus station. Let's see if we can get you on the bus. And so she found the bus driver that was going back to Philadelphia and explained our circumstances. We don't have money. We don't have guardians or parents with us. Would he be willing to watch us get up there safely? And my grandparents will be waiting at the bus station and we'll pay him. Yeah. And so all those things played out. And my grandparents had made a decision while they were waiting for us downtown Philadelphia that my mom wasn't going to get us back and they were going to do the best they can to raise us. And so at six years old, my life shifted and I got raised by my grandparents. But I also say I got raised by a playground, got raised by books, and I got raised by a community of betterment. I, I always think about that story of just the, that moment where this the strangers helping get on that bus and this bus driver is agreeing to, to take these three boys 200 miles away with the hope that somebody's there waiting for them. Yes. That, because, that's actually right? going to happen. Yeah. And that's going to actually happen, yeah. right? Like it's going to play out. And, you know, all those things, so many factors had to happen, right? Yeah. There were so many variables that could have made that all go sideways, right? right? But also even the times, right? When this was all happening, mm-hmm. it was very different times. Like there's no way that happens now. Everybody's calling child oh, services. Right. Oh, I yeah, mean, yeah. it's ridiculous, right? Yeah. But because of the times and the way, you know, people behaved as far as just, you know, supporting or helping, but not like intervening and feeling like they need to do this or that. The woman says, yes. The bus driver says, yes. My grandparents are there. And here we are. And here we are. Right. And so I just think that a lot of times the moments, those moments of innocent moments of inspiration, I like to say that playground was that one moment for me, that playground in my grandparents neighborhood, which became my first community. Yeah. And then the public library happened to be within walking distance from my grandparents house. And that's where I discovered my love of reading and words. And then we had this amazing community, but also in my schools where people believed that I could rise above my circumstances and I didn't have to be a statistic. I could actually be better than that. And so those ingredients allowed me to find a way to navigate this crazy circumstances that I had and to be able to turn ideas into reality. What sports were you playing in that playground? What whatever it? the season, dude. So, we, so we it was everything. It all. We were, yeah, 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 whatever the season. I mean, fall's football, winter's basketball. Spring is baseball. Then as we got older, it was lacrosse. It was, you know, track and field. It was uh, any ice hockey, whatever it was, we played it. Yeah. And it was just a thing in our neighborhood, right? That reputations were won and lost playing sports in our neighborhood. That's the way it was. Mm -hmm. So you just found a way to be involved in that. And what I discovered really early was I had a high athletic IQ. So I wasn't going to overwhelm you with my my stature right or my or any of that but i was fast yeah right and i was diminutive and dynamic is what i like to say right? Sure. Yeah, yeah. right but i was clever the way i played 
And so the older kids noticed that. So I actually got to quote unquote play up. Sure. I played with the older kids when they went to go play other neighborhoods. And yeah. so I started to get a lot of older kids who saw something in me and started pouring into me advice and wisdom and insights. And they said, you got something going on. We're going to make sure that you figure something out here, that you've got something that you can do. And I didn't, I didn't see it at first. They saw it. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really why I revere the ball so much. And I think about sports the way I do. And I always say there's a game within the game. You might be watching a game and you're being entertained, but watch the game a little closer and you can actually see the dynamic, the leaders, the voices, um, the relationships, the lack of relationships. You see all these things going on when you actually watch a sporting event. Certainly so. And, you know, in fact, the, this past football season, and, and I don't know if you were watching this game, but it, I think it was the AFC Championship where Tony Romo was calling the game. Oh, yeah. And, and I don't think, and, and, and people are still talking about this, where he, he having this, this uh, football IQ, he's up there kind of reading Tom Brady's mind. The defense is doing this. This is what he probably should be doing. And then was, you'd actually just watch it happen. It was it amazing. Happen. Yeah, he, yeah. He's a savant. I mean, yeah. it's rare that you find something that you actually, you know, after a professional career that you're better at. Sure. He's better at that. Oh, he's yeah. amazing at that. Yeah. Right. And, 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 so and, he's and the, the passion standard. is there. He's a new standard. Oh, I think right? everybody's going to yeah, try to recreate. But they're never going to find that. No. that I, that's, you know, yeah. that's lightning in a bottle. Yeah. I think that's unique to him. And he didn't even know it either. Right. Right. I think he's pleasantly surprised that yeah. he has he, this ability to be able to not just internalize it, right? Because he's watching it, but the ability to actually say it is hard Oh yeah, because he knows the game so well. So he could actually just be thinking it and watching it. Right. But for him to realize, oh, I have an audience listening, I'll share it. Yeah. And it's been magic. I mean, yeah, he's brilliant. He's so good. Yeah, right? yeah. He's so good. So is that is that the type of thing? I mean, it may be just one of the types of things that you're talking about when you're looking at at, at somebody playing a game, looking into look at those different strategies that they're putting in place. Because when I when I hear you say uh, like a, a sports IQ, to me that's that you can that you don't just see what's in front of you. You see what's going to happen two, three, four moves down, so that you can kind of prepare for it. And I think even mine was was even more so than just the. The gameplay, it was relationships mm-hmm. and connections and, and team dynamic. So I was always looking at how do I make sure others are involved and they're sharing their gifts and talents. And I'm p- bringing people in who would maybe be marginalized in the play. right? And so I was always looking at how's everybody going to be feeling invested in this effort. And so I can watch games and I can tell if they respect the coach or not. I watch it because, you know, my background in a, as an athletic trainer in yeah. sports medicine, I don't watch a game like a fan because I'm watching the, the game like someone who was sitting on the bench, right? who was in the locker room. Mm-hmm. So I, I can see all the subtleties that are going on, body language, um, the way people come on and off the court, let's say in basketball or on and off the field, how they engage with their teammates or not, how the teammates actually greet them when they come off the field. All these things are telling about the team dynamic, the relationship they have with people, the culture that they've created. It's really fascinating to see that kind of work and how that then translates onto the gameplay. Yeah. That goes back to the conversation we actually have before we I, I turned on the recorder about when you walk into a company and how you're greeted kind of will kind of tell you how that company's oh, culture is. It'll tell you the culture immediately, yeah. right? The, the lobby is the most telling area, right? The greeting area and how you're welcomed or not. And does it feel transactional when you're entering that building or does it feel transformational? Yeah. 
does it feel intentional how they want to greet you? Maybe they not they didn't have to brief them. They hired the right people, mm-hmm. but they also reflect the energy within the culture, right? And it's usually, I mean, it's it's a very easy thing. And I mean, you know, coming here to uh, Kink Alpha and coming to that front desk and Trisha, I mean, she's amazing. And yeah. so I hadn't seen her easily two years or more. Yeah, right. And so she looks up over that, you know, the, the, yeah, she <laughs> just barely, she, she just, just barely pokes her head up. Yep. She pokes her head up and the smile, yeah. cause she kind of did a double take went, and her mouth like dropped open. She says, it's Kevin. So she hits the buzzer, right? She's up out of her chair and comes yeah, yeah. up. Oh my gosh. Right. And so we start chatting and just talking, but she said, man, my energy just went up. Yeah. No, I, I said the same thing. I said the same thing. Her energy's up. My energy's up. And, and the catalyst is in the building, right? <laughs> so, I'm, yeah. But game recognize game. You know that. Yeah. That's how that works for when, it. When you, um, when you say, like, you're, you're watching sports differently, as, as somebody who's done athletic training and, and, and your, uh, you know, your background in medicine, so you're watching them, bo- body language, and you could probably be seeing stuff that's both, emo- both emotional and also how they're carrying themselves to know if there's like a physical issue. Oh, absolutely. You're seeing all that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, all those things that we had to learn um, in our training as an athletic trainer and, and sports medicine specialist and strength and conditioning specialist, all those things, I see that. Yeah. And you can tell a lot of things. So I always like to watch the game within the game. Right. So the game is going on, but I can tell, you can see a lot of little things if you don't look at the game and follow the ball. Mm-hmm. Look at the game in a more wide lens, and you can see a lot of things that are really amazing, right? And it's just, it's. I just have always marveled at teams, yeah, and the complexity and the wonder of it. There's something magical and amazing about a team, right? And be it dysfunctional or be it highly functioning and high performing, sure. But there's still there's still something magical about seeing how did they get to that dysfunction because mm-hmm. some. Things had to happen to get to that place where they don't perform well. And then there's these amazing things that happen when they're high-performing teams. And I always go back to leadership. Right. Right? Yeah. Your team is a direct reflection of you, leader X, Y, or Z. No ifs, ands, or buts. Guaranteed, it is a reflection of you. So when leaders throw their hands up, I don't understand. I said, why don't you? It's you. Yeah. If you're a hot mess, your squad's going to be a hot mess. If you got great energy, you got great focus, you got great intention, you show up, your team will reflect that. And I just think that more leaders need to be aware of that. Um, I, I had an experience not too long ago. You can you can see I'm rocking my jazz. I hat know. Here I in see that. Yes. Yes. Because um, I I had this exper- experience not too long ago, Kevin, where moving to Portland and deciding, okay, I grew up as a jazz fan. I grew up with Carl Malone and, and John Stockton. But coming to, P- to Portland, I'm like, I'm going to adopt the the Blazers as my team, and I, and I still take that take that approach. However, the Jazz team, and I don't know if this is good marketing or just that they've got a special team right now. Because when you talk about having a special team, that I'm just something in me of the games I went to as a kid and watching games with my grandfather, I'm just like, okay, I, I'm all in for Jazz again, and I'll support the Blazers when they're not playing the Jazz. So the they you know they have the, the their four game series over the course of the of the season and I was able to get some really good tickets behind the Jazz bench for their last game here in Portland at the Moda Center and the Blazers just destroyed them and being able, sitting that close and seeing the squad and see exactly what you're talking about where you're seeing their faces and you can see the frustration 
and you're trying to see okay who's who's trying to lead this thing and and it you know there's some days where you've got the leaders on the side which are the coaches and then you have the leaders in the team and leaders on the side can only do so much so when a leader in the team doesn't step up nothing it, it, the frustration was just amazing i've never seen a game that way but i think that's exactly what you're talking but about but there could be so many variables yeah. that led to that the travel that's involved honestly, you, you know all this oh honestly there's yeah. so many factors yeah. that can make that moment happen right unbeknownst to the fans yeah that all it was the it was the perfect storm yeah and they come into the arena and a lot of times coaches will say uh-uh, this is not going to be a good night like they can tell right this, it can be a, in a very subtle thing, but a coach can tell, like, it's not going to be a good night. Yeah. And you think about 82 games, there's going to be some nights, right, where that alpha on your team or those two leaders or whatever you want to call them, if one of them is a little off, mm-hmm. that energy will permeate through the team. Yeah. It just does. And because you spend so much time together, it really is this infectious thing that just ripples through the team. Sure. So it and matchups, right? We also know that it's always matchups too. Yeah. Right. So if you know that you have trouble with a team going into that matchup and that game, that's already coming on the court with you. Like, you know, we have trouble with this team. Yeah. So with the Blazers, it's like the Grizzlies, mm-hmm. Memphis Grizzlies. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. It's like always, right? You don't want to play them in the playoffs. You don't, right. right. Yeah. The Grizzlies tend to be that team for the Blazers. Yeah. And so you start to understand going into it, your mindset's always like, oh, we have trouble with them. Oh, we had trouble on our flight getting in here. Oh, right. we didn't get in. Then uh, next thing you know, all the factors have, and here's this moment, yeah. and they lay an egg. And it happens, right? And so what do they do? They, the coaches say, we're not even going to look at the video, the tape from that game. We're going to burn that. It's done. Let's go and keep it moving. But I think when you look at it from a business standpoint too, there's a lot of those same things, mm-hmm. right? Is that knowing tendencies, knowing how our team responds to, hey, we just had this really important um, push for, uh, you know, delivering a product or a brand story or something and everybody was all hands on deck and it was amazing. But if you don't plan, how do we recover from that? Right. From an energy standpoint and you just keep pushing your team, guess what's going to happen? They're going to start hitting a wall. Yeah. And people do passive aggressive stuff, right? They do. Oh yeah, stuff, yeah, yeah. Right? They do things I, yep. to let you know, right? But the players do the same thing. Yeah, they do the same thing. But if you're a fan and you're watching it for entertainment, you won't see that. So that was an amazing opportunity for you to get a, a different perspective. Because when you're closer, you really can see you, the nuance. You, you can see the frustration. Yep. You can see. You can. You, you can, can see, hear you can, it. You can hear. You, hear oh, it. you, you, you can hear, hear it. it. And you can also hear the the group of guys that always buy those tickets right behind the, yes. the bench, and just how brutal they can they be. Can, they're ter- that's tough. Yes, yeah. and, and that and and that's sport to them, right? <laughs> yeah, I know. That's sport to them. Like they do their homework to yeah. prepare to be professional hecklers, yeah. right? Like they do that, and they're it's yeah, it's crazy. It, it does change it because uh, all those things, and then you know maybe maybe as I now I'm in my forties and I appreciate sleep and I appreciate sleeping in my own bed. You know how with that <laughs> yes. all the traveling you're yes. doing so and it was probably just this season where i really started thinking about of the 82 games and how much of that most half roughly half of that is on the road yes you're not in your own bed you're not around your wife you're not around your kids you know so it's 90 games basically if you include preseason sure right? oh yeah yeah so you figure 45 games you're on the road yeah 45 that's nights. rough 
Because when you go on vacation, it's normally a couple of days in before you're like kind of comfortable in that hotel yes. room. You figure it out. And then you never are there long enough. No, no, no. no. And then yeah. you're. It's all that factors, yeah, just yeah, that physical all, stuff. All those things, right? And so those are those are all things that can impact performance. Yeah. And I think that's a big part of what I really enjoy about sport is how people find a way to navigate that and still perform at a high level. Right. It's amazing. When you think about basketball, people come to watch you do your job. Yeah. Thousands of people are watching you perform. Mm -hmm. You sit here as the program director at Kink. There's not anybody coming in to watch you do that. Right. Thank goodness. But imagine if there were professional hecklers. Oh, yeah. Right. That people had done their homework on you. Yeah. That were there watching you and throwing little lobs of insults and things to get you off your game. Right. And you still perform. Yeah. And some of those guys ball out, have no problem, right? And give stink eye to the fans and all. It's amazing. So I'm always marveling at the ability for an individual to be able to perform when the stakes are the highest with all the lights on you. Yeah. Center court and you have to perform and you're doing your job, quote unquote. Yeah. It's amazing. It's amazing how people can lock in compartmentalize and perform. It's not an easy thing, but imagine if you could take any, a little bit of that into your workplace, attitude and mindset. Right. Yeah. If you brought that, right, your A game, if you brought that, I'm going to bring it, right? You can count on me. I'm showing up. And you brought a, a 1% of what those guys have to do, those women do, whatever. Oh my gosh, can you imagine court? And you repeated that on the regular? Yeah. You got a high performing team. But I think a lot of people don't think that way. They just, I'm my title. This is what I'm supposed to do. I'm going to do my job, keep my head down, and I'm out. Right. right. And they're being transactional versus how do we get people to be more transformational? And that's a lot of what uh, you work on day to day with different groups. Yeah. I mean, just really trying to get organizations and individuals and leaders to pay attention to your intention. Yeah. Pay attention to it. Right, you say you want these things. You say you want your team to be a certain way. You say you want your business to perform at this. But are you doing the things to increase the likelihood of that happening? Most people aren't. Most leaders for they they neglect that. Yeah, they're like, it's, here's what I want you to do, do it. And it's rhetoric. Yeah, they do what they see. They're going to model you. They do what they see. And you know, th- there's this wonderful thought. My grandfather would say it all the time. How you do the little things is how you do all things. So you got to handle your business. It's the details. It's always going to be the details. And leaders have to decide before they enter that building, that structure that you're leading, wherever it might be, you're crossing a threshold, Court. You're crossing a threshold. You're going into a, a realm, a, in a, an environment, and you have to decide, how am I showing up? How's my energy? How am I going to be in here? Here we go. And you, you walk in that doorway. Mm-hmm. So you either choose to bring it or not. If you bring bad energy, and you know this about some leaders, people wait to see them walk like towards their office, and they're already sending notes. It's not a good day. Oh, Don't ask anything. Yeah, yeah. It's not a good day. Yep. Don't right. Yeah. By yeah. body language and the way they enter. Yep. That not even not, nothing is even said. It's just the the way they walk in. Right. Yeah. Well, yeah. And and the team will talk. Right. right? Oh, Protect, you know they. You but, know they are. Oh, come on. Yeah. Come on, dude. Yeah. Right? They're doing hand signals. They got all yeah. kinds of ways of communicating <laughs> right? without yep. the leader being aware. Right. 
And I just think the more that leaders recognize that their intention and their energy matters, and it'll be reflected back in your team. And you know, here I, I will say, and I don't know if the folks here pay attention, but that front desk, and we've always talked about that, that is a key thing. And when you see someone with that you know, infectious energy like Trisha, it makes a difference in how the guests feel. Sure, yeah. No, no, I, I, I make sure I always start my day walking through there because there's about five other ways I could come in this building. I make sure I go through there. Yes. Trisha will make that difference. Absolutely. The Portland 50 podcast is presented by Jaguar Land Rover Portland. One company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950. Talking Trash, a Green Tips podcast is a chance for me to jump into the world of sustainability by talking to people in business, government, and nonprofits. Hi, I'm Peggy LaPointe. You can find weekly episodes every Tuesday at kink.fm, Apple iTunes, or wherever you download podcasts. As we talk about your path to Portland, it, it comes through Nike. Yes. But before Nike, um, you were the uh, head athletic trainer for the Philadelphia 76ers. Yes. How did you end up there? So... I was in the Air Force for 10 years, Did my uh, got my degree in athletic training while I was in the Air Force, and then left the Air Force, moved back to Philadelphia, and was raising my sons and living in the area. I was a high school athletic trainer, then I got a collegiate job at St. Joe's University, mm-hmm. and that happened to be where the 76ers practiced. They didn't have their own training facility yet, mm-hmm. and I got to know the team and would help out during the day while my athletes were in school. Yeah. And... When their head athletic trainer was leaving, he actually told the team that they should hire me. But I actually didn't want the job at first. Oh, you didn't? Not because I'd been around them. I'm like, no, that's, that's those are big kids with money. Right, right, no, right. That, that's I'm a, that's a whole to, different world. I'm not trying to herd cats like that and yeah, deal yeah. with all that drama. Yeah. And it was actually really amazing what he said to me. He said, but Kevin, it could impact your network, which would then impact your relationship for your boys. Yeah. And so I went, oh, okay. And so he suggested that I get interviewed for it. I end up getting that job. Mm-hmm. And I'm now the head athletic trainer for the 76ers in 95. Jerry Stackhouse is our first round pick. The next year, Allen Iverson is our first round pick. Mm-hmm. And so it was amazing to be on the bench with them. And then my languages actually came into play. Yeah, in the, in the Air Force, yes, you were yeah, an interpreter. I, I was, yeah, so I was, I, I always say I was black Jason Bourne. I was black born. <laughs> yeah, I was doing my black born thing, yeah. working there, military intelligence, top secret clearance, blah, 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 blah. Yes, whole nother story, Court. Yeah, yes, we'll, we'll yeah. do it. We'll we do, do a separate, whole another separate, we'll separate episode on that. Yep. Yes, yep. but um, I, I I speak Serbian, Croatian, and Czech and German. I can read Russian, and we're playing the Charlotte Hornets, and on their team is Vlade Divac. Uh huh. And Vlade Divac is having a monster night and talking trash every time he goes by the bench. My coach is getting frustrated and wants to distract him, and for whatever reason, he remembers I know Vlade's language. Right. And he says, why don't you start saying something about his mom or dad or sister or brother <laughs> when he runs by the bench to distract him so I can come up with a better defense and not use our timeouts. So now I'm arguing with my coach about insulting a seven-foot-tall man right. in his native language. And he says, just help the team out, Carol. <laughs> so uh, I end up doing it, and I start insulting him. And mind you, we had two weeks of obscenities training in the military. Right, okay. Oh, I can tell you, your you, mama jokes to smash you, you dude. You, you got to learn those oh, things. Oh, yeah, you got to learn those things, right? right? Yeah. So I start talking about his mom, his dad, his sister, his brother. So by the fifth time I've insulted his family lineage, he stops. The game is going on and he's walking towards our bench. Yeah. 
who's insulting my family in Serbian? And the coach points to me and he goes, no way. And I go, Dobrodan, Kakosvikos, Bodine. And he's like, what? So the rest of the game, he's missing shots, not not doing well at all. And yeah, the coach yeah. is thrilled, right? And the game ends and I'm scrambling to get my bag and everything. And I hear this, where's that little guy at? And I'm like, uh-oh. He's like, where's that little guy at? And he's walking to our locker room looking for me. Right. And so I'm bracing for the worst possible thing to happen, and the unexpected happens. He goes, hey, you, never thought I'd meet a you. Mm -hmm. The Yugoslavia national basketball team just qualified for the 96 Olympic Games in Atlanta. We're looking for a sports medicine liaison and a translator, and you're perfect. Oh, wow. And so I ended up wow. traveling with the Yugoslavia national basketball team. I did their pre-Olympic tour for the 96 Games. And the NBA was so intrigued with there's an African-American man who's a head athletic trainer for the 76ers who speaks fluent Serbian working with the Yugoslavian national basketball team. Oh, we should do a story about that. Yeah. And so NBA Inside Stuff did a story and someone from Nike saw it. Mm -hmm. And I got a phone call out of the blue from Nike and they wanted to hire me. Hire you to do what? Though? They didn't know. That, okay. that was the whole thing, so, right? They just said, we want you. We don't know what you're going to do. But we know you can add value, and if you'll take a risk, we'll figure it out together. Yeah. And so that's what ended up happening. I decided to leave the Sixers after two seasons. There was this opportunity for me to spend more time with my boys right. and to be um, the kind of parent that my parents weren't. Mm -hmm. And so we moved out here to Portland, Oregon in 97, and I spent seven years at Nike, and I got to create my own role there. And I've been in Portland ever since, since 1997. And that, that role, I'm, I'm assuming over time, over the seven years, evolved probably out constantly. But um, my understanding is that's where the, the Kevin Carroll, the catalyst, came about, where you would meet with people all over the company to, to talk about what they're working on and help foster that, that spark. Yeah, exactly. That's a great way to put it. And, and one of the things that I realized... After the fat court, so since I've been on my own, right, since 2004, but while I was there, I paused now and I went, oh my gosh, what I was doing was recreating Preston Playground, that place that I grew up at, Yeah, that was about inclusion, that was about everybody participating, it was about everyone celebrating and sharing their gifts. And that's what I was doing at Nike, was making sure or ensuring that more people were involved in the game, if you will. Yeah. Right. And so I was a bridge builder and I was a big part of what I was asked to do there. And I worked all over the company, kind of like an internal consultant. And mm -hmm. it was amazing that I had the ability to work with senior executives all the way down to people in shipping and receiving. Just, just to make their jobs better and more enjoyable for them. And also for them to perform better, yeah. right? And to deliver on the promise, right? Yeah. So I think that was a big part of what I got an opportunity to do there. And, you know, in learning even more so about team dynamic, right? And teams have always mattered to me. When I decided to leave in 2004, I just wanted to have more reach and impact. It wasn't that I was unhappy there. Mm -hmm. It was more that I had an opportunity to impact more people on a global scale and so I realized that was important for me to to follow through on that yeah and so yeah I got the blessing of the the folks there at Nike to go forth and prosper and I've continued to have a great relationship with them and with lots of sports industry brands and individuals because people move around quite a bit this is the hub right here right in in town here and yeah. so yeah so it's been wonderful to not only work with the sports industry but Anyone who's seeking the way to maximize human potential within their organization. When did uh, your idea for the, your book, the first book, Rules of, of the Red Rubber Ball, 
when did when did that i'm assuming that the idea probably is going way back oh yeah you're going back to the playground yeah oh with absolutely the red rubber balls we all played with that had the texture on them if you got hit hit in the head with them <laughs> scrape off <laughs> scrape half your chin off yeah 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 i always i always remind folks not everybody has such a affinity or a wonderful uh memories of that ball yeah. right i was agile and nimble and quick so i was good i was i could play all kinds of games and not really get the welts from it right. and stuff the marks from it but i uh, always looked for the ones that were a little more worn yes yes they were right, the older ones smoother, right, smoother. Yeah, yep. smoother yes exactly oh, yeah. but i think um you know that was Miss Lane, who was like my best friend's mom, who became my mom, more more importantly, I called her my chief encouragement officer mm-hmm. of my dreams, right? So she was my encourager. And Miss Lane kept saying to me, you need to write a book. Look at all these things that have happened in your life. You need to write a book. And I was so adamant, Miss Lane, who's going to care? Why do I need to write a book? And she said one day, which made me pause, she said, well, you know, there's another you out there that needs to know what's possible. And that's when I went, oh, okay. Maybe I should do a book. But then there was the part of me having been around creative and innovation and all these things at Nike and branding. I said, well, I'm not going to do a book like anybody else's. I don't want it to be like everybody else's book. She said, well, of course, you don't have to. She says, why not? Just do whatever you want. So I put together this amazing proposal with all these bells and whistles and this great innovative thinking. And we shop it around (laughs) publishers and they reject it. Yeah, nobody wanted to do it. No, they said it was over-designed and too creative. (laughs) Right. <laughs> and they said, yeah, we, you need to dumb that down and maybe we'll consider doing it. And so I decided to self-publish it and it took off mm-hmm. all word of mouth. And we sold 11,000 copies in nine months. And one of those copies happened to land on someone's desk at ESPN. And I got a phone call out of the blue from ESPN and they wanted to sign me to a book deal. Hmm. And so that was part of the impetus for me leaving Nike. Right. Was I got this book deal and then the speakers bureau saw me on stage doing a Nike thing and wanted to represent me. And now I've got this opportunity for more reach, got platforms. So 2004, I decided to go and my book is self-published that year. And then I signed the deal with ESPN in 2005. And And that book is now in its 15th, 16th, 17th printing, over 250,000 in print. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's a, a, uh, I don't want to say a second version of it, but there's a... It's like a trilogy, right? So there were three books total. All of them have Red Rubber Ball in some way in the title. So What's Your Red Rubber Ball was the second book Mm -hmm. that was done with Disney Press and ESPN. And then the third book was uh, The Red Rubber Ball at Work. Yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking of. It's it's like a The third one, yeah. No, the second one is the kit That's the kit? Yeah, the workbook. Yeah, the workbook. Okay. Which now I've turned into an interactive PDF that I give to teachers to do the exercises in their classrooms, which is amazing. So through social, they actually post the pictures of the box that they make and the stories. Right. And we go back and forth on social with that. And then the third one were interviews. Okay. Where I interviewed 33 people around how play helps shape what they're doing now. So Malcolm Gladwell, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, Paulo Coelho, oh, a host of other people talking about play and how play helps shape who they are today and what they're endeavor to do and what kind of work that they're doing yeah how it inspired them is your approach um because it and you just talked about it you, you work with nike you work with big C, big companies ceos and companies big groups people and then you work with classrooms and kids and students do you approach those differently or is the question the same the question's always the same it's just where it's meeting you at in your journey on yeah. your continuum of life right so but the question is always what gets you out of bed in the morning what inspires you that's, that's the question. What that's is your one. red rubber ball? Yeah. Yeah. What's your red rubber ball and what gets you out of bed that you want to chase it, that you want to pursue it? Yeah. 
and everybody should have something you're pursuing, you're chasing, right? And there's this um, gypsy saying, my future is getting shorter. So mm-hmm. stop wasting time. Right. Have something that sparks you, right? And and even if it's not the job that you go to every day, but you should have something that you're passionate about. So your job can be serving a purpose to allow you to do your passion when you leave it. Right. But you want to have something that matters to you, right? That you're advancing so that that way you're not just going through the motions, mm-hmm. that you're showing up every day with an intention, right? To advance something, a hope, a dream, an aspiration, whatever it might be. But I just think that's important. And that goes, harkens all the way back to my youth, right? And my circumstances and a choice, right? I could be a victim or I could be a fighter. I could be someone who believes that my circumstances are going to dictate my destiny or not. I made a decision. I was going to rise above my circumstances, but I think people can do that. Yeah. And I've witnessed it all over the world. And so don't tell me, you know, about the problems or issues you're facing. How are you going to find a way to navigate and rise above? And you can, there's a way, mm-hmm. right? And it's not going to happen overnight. It's not microwavable, right? You got to hang in there and do the work. But there's lots of talkers and very few doers, right? That think that's a truth. And my grandfather would say, don't talk about it, be about it. So that's the choice every day. I, I think back to maybe it was probably five, six years ago yeah. where I was going through my own kind yes. of, I was trying to figure out what my red rubber ball was. Yes. And, uh, um, you know, I would have text conversations with you. And when you'd come in here to the studio, you were always talking with me about it. And I, one of the things you said, um, because, you know, I, I had this attitude where I, I need to try it. I need to, you know, I guess I just should just try this and, and see, but you, you told me once, there is power in the word no. Come on now. You remember that? Come on now. Come on. Yes. Like, and, yes. and, and it was just like the heavens open. It's like, oh. <laughs> yes. And because and sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is no. Because I think oftentimes we hear this thing of just like, just fight through it, fight through it, fight through it. Sometimes though, you, the, there's the power in the word no. There, oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's power in no, right? And as a great friend of mine said, no is sexy. You say no to somebody. They're like, what? Wait, you're saying no to me? Yeah. But no is also abundance. Right. That you're saying, I can say no to this because I know there's something better awaiting me and I need to make room for it. Yeah. And I believe that. I have to believe that. But I'm not just going to sit idly by and wait and hope for it. I'm going to be advancing something mm-hmm. that could actually create that opportunity. But if you keep saying yes to everything, then one thing you don't have infinite is time. Right. So if you said yes to something that, and then that commitment has gotten in the way of maybe that thing that you truly wanted. Right. So sometimes you have to, you know, stay in your lane. You have to know what it is that you want and what you're hoping for. And you have to say no to some things and have the discipline and clarity of your purpose and your intention every day. I'm about these three things, the ball, books, and betterment. Those are my three things, Mm -hmm. my three B's, right? So I know if it doesn't fall in those broad categories, when you're coming to me with an idea, I'm going to say no. Now, I might suggest someone else that might be a better fit for you. Right. But I'm comfortable with saying no to that. Yeah. Because that's not on message for me. That's not a part of my trilogy of the things I want to be focused on and invested in. And by saying no to that thing, even though it might have been really intriguing, right, and amazing, but saying no to that allowed room for the thing that's supposed to be coming to me. Yeah. And the thing that I care about. Right. 
Right. And so we can be chasing ghosts, man. You don't want to be chasing the wrong things. You need to know what is it that I get out of bed for in the morning? What do I care about? And having that clarity and court, I mean, we talked about it, right? You, we, when you started zeroing in on what you wanted to do mm-hmm. and what you wanted to spend your time on. But the one thing you always said, I want to be available for my girls. Yeah. Remember? Yep. That was a big part that of it. That was the big, that, right? Yeah, that it was, was one of the it. big, yeah. That was one of the big things, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. And so you didn't want to be this ghost dad. You wanted to be, you know, that's just kind of coming in and out and they just barely, you're like an apparition, a shadow, right? right? Where's that? No, yes, yeah. right? You had made a decision. And so that was probably the foundation of all of your business decisions. Right. And now to look where the journey has taken you over that six years. Yeah. And now what you're doing as a program director, but- Remember you were saying, I just, I have these ideas and I want to be able to share them and be able to deliver on them. And then I said, yeah, well, it sounds like you would be leading something. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they don't understand yet. (laughs) They don't see me yet. I said, it's okay. Yeah. You got to stay on message and don't chase things because they're going to entice you with stuff that might not be the right thing. Right. So remember we had a couple of those conversations where where you said, well, they just said, you know, they gave me this thing. I said, yeah, but is that the thing? Right. I said, because you don't want to start getting labeled something and then they create a narrative for you. You want to create your narrative. Right. And I just think that your ability to have the confidence to say no, right? Because it takes, that's courage. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, to say no, right? Because like, oh man, because that's a scary thing. Yeah. But you have to know if I have the courage to say no, then that means I have clarity about what it is I'm chasing. It's taking me back, man. Come on, dude. It's right? taking me back. I, um, I, I could talk with you all day, uh, Kevin, but we're short. Uh, we're running out of time, and I want to be respectful of your time. Yes. I, I want to talk. Just you mentioned. You mentioned. Um, yeah, we talk about ball a lot, and you've you've been collecting balls in all these different places and countries. How many balls are you up to? now? I have now. It's 150 in the in artifacts from around the world in the ball collection, which I just donated. Oh, you did to the Aspen Institute. Yes, so they are the um, owners of the collection now. I actually did an event in Washington D.C. at the museum. Um, with the Aspen Project Play, mm-hmm. and I actually gifted it to them um, wow. after the event. And so I know it was touring for yeah, a while. So a little it, yeah, bit. that yeah. was the last place it toured. So okay. it was on display in the museum in DC, which was really amazing. And then I actually uh, got a chance to interview Kobe Bryant at that event. Mm-hmm. And I've known Kobe since he was in eighth grade, rising freshman in high school, because yeah. he's from the Philly area. And um, got to see and witness this amazing community, global community of people who believe a ball can change the world and sport and play matter. Yeah. And so I donated the collection to them. So and they uh, it was really inspiring to see it on display, but then for it to go on. So now there are parts of the collection are in Aspen, Colorado Mm -hmm. at their headquarters. And part of it is in Washington, D.C. at the headquarters for Project Play. And I should point out these are these are not just, you know, just a collection. Oh, no. These are these are uh, in some villages you to go into and how they created a ball with just what was available to them. Exactly. I mean, it's 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 a marvel in our ingenuity, problem solving, Asha thinking, innovative spirit around play. Yeah. That wherever you go in the world, this is one thing I know to be true. People are playing and we all speak ball. Everybody understands a ball. They understand that icon. So you can go anywhere in the world if you have something spherical with you, people get it, right? It's its own iconic connection, right? And we all have a play history. Mm -hmm. And so I love the fact that play helps to shape people no matter where you go in the world. 
You would you would come in and trade. You'd bring yes, in. Yes, I bring you, brand new soccer ball. So you weren't, you weren't taking balls away, yeah. but you would. Tra- it was a trade always, for a trade. Always a trade. Yeah. So it was just like at the yeah. playground or, yeah. or lunchroom, right? Trading your, your yep. lunch or whatever. Yeah, I would bring a brand new soccer ball, basketball, playground ball. Uh, it could be a cricket ball, whatever the the games were yeah. for your culture. I would bring those, yeah. and I would actually gift that to them and as an offer. And I'd say, could I have that one though? That's all worn down. Mm-hmm. And of course, many times they said, why would you want that? I said, well, there are stories there. Yeah. That ball, if that ball could talk, it would tell amazing stories. Would, of, yeah. What was the most, I mean, there was probably a few of these. Oh, yeah. Most, most unique material used to make a ball. Um, the fibers from a tree in Uganda, from a banana tree. They'd weave it together. Yes, and, yes. and, and you'd always know when the, when the game was over because the ball disintegrates and disappears. <laughs> huh? so, and you had to go make another what's the, one. What's the score? Yes, so, yeah. yeah, exactly. So I think that one's really a marvel in ingenuity and problem solving. And what do we have available? We've got these trees. Let's peel that down and make a ball out of that. Yeah. We could talk for hours, as I mentioned. We don't have time for it. Uh, we'll have you back. We'll talk about your military intelligence, ba- intelligence background, right? And <laughs> yes, talk about exactly. some super spy yeah. stuff. Well, I'll redact. I'll redact quite a bit, but it's okay. Yeah, we can go into the Blackborn days for sure. <laughs> there we go. Thanks, Kevin. <laughs> Absolutely, Court. I appreciate you, man. Be well. Thank you for listening today. And in case you've missed any previous podcast, be sure to check out kink.fm or download an episode wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're at it, be sure to like and subscribe. The Portland 50 is a podcast about the people who dream, build, and champion the uniqueness of Portland, creating a better community for generations to come. It's presented weekly by Jaguar Land Rover Portland, one company, two iconic brands. Jaguar Land Rover Portland is a Don Rasmussen company, the legendary Portland institution serving our community since 1950.